Again, here's uh, Dr. Whitney High. He's going to talk about uh, mycology. So please welcome back the male, Whitney High. Thank you. <laughs> That's right. All right, we got the real troopers here at the late afternoon, people that like fungus. Oops. Uh, so, yeah, it's still me. I'm still a man. Uh, and uh, I actually have a, a big interest in uh, infectious dermatology. In fact, I, I love infectious dermatology. I consider doing infectious disease. Uh, and, and when I was a younger man, I went to uh, Peru and worked there at the Ministry of Health, who's my lovely company car right here. And I got to see a whole bunch of different fungus uh, for sure that we don't see. And I, I, I write a great deal about infectious dermatology too. So it is an interest of mine, although I practice less and less dermatology and more and more dermatopathology each year. Um, so uh, the things we're going to talk about are mostly superficial fungal infections, unless we have extra time. Um, but uh, probably the biggest thing we need to talk about is dermatophytes. And dermatophytes are unique. They're like carpet beetles uh, in that they're, they're one of the few species uh, on Earth that can use uh, keratin as an energy substrate. We can't use keratin as an energy substrate, but carpet beetles and dermatophytes can. And there's certainly many ways you can acquire dermatophytes. You can acquire them from your pet, you know, from animals, from the gym. If you acquire them from wearing other people's underwear, then you probably deserve uh, what you got. Um, but it, it certainly is a, a route of acquisition. Uh, so again, we're going to be talking mostly about dermatophytes. Uh, there's really three main families of dermatophytes, trichophyton, microsporum, and epidermophyton. And then uh, at the end, we'll kind of uh, talk a little bit about non-dermatophytes, candida and pterosporum uh, being the cause of candidiasis and, and uh, pteriasis versicolor, respectively. Um, but uh, again, we're, we're going to focus on, on first things first, the things that we, we see the most. One of the first things and the things that's most confusing to my doctors that refer cases to me that are, are non-dermatologists is that they think that this is some kind of Latin lovely name of a species. So the person's got tinea capitis, they've got tinea barbie, tinea facia. That's not a species at all. The world, word tinea simply means that you're dealing with a dermatophyte infection, and it's the main reason that people want to move away from, from tinea versicolor and refer to it as pityriasis versicolor, so that it's very clear that it's not tinea. So tinea, again, should really be uh, restricted to things that are dermatophyte infections, and then we change the name briefly, mostly for job security, but also to indicate uh, where on the body it is. Tinea barbie, beard infection, tinea corporis, truncal infection, tinea pedis, foot infection, etc., etc., etc. So we're going to move from the head down. Uh, first, we're going to talk about tinea capitis, which is a disease chiefly of school-aged children. You can see up to 72% of cases uh, in a large series involve school-aged children, you know, like uh, uh, three to six years, uh, three to seven years old, right in there, uh, very, very young uh, uh, children for the most part. It's rare in really young infants, and then it's also very rare in older adults. And so, you know, I always uh, worry when the, the, the woman, when I have a hair disease clinic or something like that, and every 35-year-old woman thinks she has a fungal infection because she has a little thinning of her hair uh, after, after childbearing or something like that. It's very tedious to explain to them that actually fungal uh, infections of the scalp occur in a very, very narrow uh, age range for the most part. Uh, there are different forms of tinea capitis, and like the British uh, like to refer to gray patch tinea capitis, which looks a little bit like seborrheic dermatitis, um, but you'd always want to palpate around and see if people have uh, cervical uh, lymphadenopathy or uh, occipital lymphadenopathy, which is more common in tinea. Uh, this is the most common kind 
uh, in America, it's called trichophyton tonsorans, and it's, it leads to what's called black dot tinea capitis because it's an endothrix and it causes the hair to break off. And so those broken off hairs look like little tiny comedones uh, in the skin, but they're actually broken off fungally infected hairs that become brittle and they break off at the skin surface. And again, that's black dot tinea capitis, which is indicative of an endothrix. And in America, that would most often be trichophyton tonsorans. Uh, so here's uh, tinea capitis causing more inflammation right here. Uh, this is uh, an inflammatory uh, form of tinea capitis. And if inflammation gets very, very significant, you can end up with a carry-on. And a carry-on is very, very troubling uh, to most non-dermatologic professionals like ourselves because often they'll do a superficial culture or something like that and they'll end up growing staph or some other organisms which shouldn't be surprising at all considering the amount of serous crusting they have up on top of the lesion. But then they'll mistreat the patient uh, with antibiotics for a long uh, duration before somebody else says, I wonder if they have a fungal infection. Uh, and again, carry-ons, the, the good data to quote people is about 50% of people have no permanent hair loss, about 25% of people have some hair loss, and about 25% of people have very, very profound and significant hair loss uh, from the scarring process. So a carry-on is somewhat of a, a cosmetic emergency if there is such a thing. If you move down off the scalp onto the face, you have tinea barbie, uh, which is an infection of a bearded face, so you hope it's limited to men, although that's not always the case. Um, but it has historical interest from a barber shop perspective. And most recently, where I really used to see it a lot, and I do see it still in Denver, is with people that work with domestic animals like uh, livestock. Uh, that's where I actually used to see it all the time here in Dallas, and I still see it in Denver on occasion. Um, but again, tinea barbie is just a name to refer to disease of the bearded face. Here's an example where you should be very, very suspicious of tinea barbie just based on the pattern uh, of, of the lesion, this annual lesion with central clearing, and that's easy to think about because dermatophytes like to eat keratin. And so it's like, uh, it's like the uh, trees of Easter Island. Uh, each year, the, uh, they used to go out further and further and cut, cut more trees down and bring them home uh, for wood sources and, and cooking and things like that. And slowly, they, they made the entire island free of trees. Well, the same thing holds true with dermatophytes. They keep going out in search of more and more keratin on the, on the skin surface. And so they lead to this annular growth. Uh, again, it's very, very common to see in men. It's very, very common to see it in the neck area. And particularly in Texas, it was common in people that worked with cattle because they would use their neck uh, to hold uh, the steer. Uh, and then they'd use their arm to, to help stabilize it. And then they'd use their free arm to give it an injection or do whatever they were doing. So it was very, very common uh, to see it in that area. Here was a patient that I saw recently at the VA. Uh, embarrassingly, this patient has been a VA patient for uh, nearly a decade and has been treated uh, for the last three or five years uh, with this rash on the face that he was told was dermatitis. Well, I just happened to be an attending there at the D VA that day. It's not uh, something I usually do. And it bothered me that this had kind of an annular pattern to it. Everybody see the rough annulus? And so I asked the patient, I said, what do you do, sir? And he said, um, he said, I drive a truck between Wyoming and Denver three times a week, and it's filled with sheep. And I said, well, what do you do with those sheep? And he said, well, you know, I, I manhandle them into the, into the truck and everything like that, and then I drive it from Casper to Denver. And uh, so, so I said, well, do you ever, you know, what do you do? And he kind of showed me what he did. And I said, I, I bet I know what this guy has. And so he actually had tinea barbie that he had been using fluorinated steroids on, which just only promotes matters and makes it worse. Uh, and, and so again, the clue that made me think to ask some more historical questions was this roughly annular pattern 
uh, to the rash. So tinea barbie is the bearded face. Tinea facii is basically the same thing of the non-bearded face. And it, it's also typically annular, but it can be kind of subtle. In this patient, it was diagnosed as dermatitis for a long time and certainly does look a little bit like a lip lickers or fluid-induced uh, irritation of the skin, but it has these distinct annuli in these active areas. Again, the dermatophytes going out in search of keratin because you actually are what you eat in, in many regards. Uh, this woman was sent to me from uh, a dermatologist with a diagnosis of nickel dermatitis secondary to eyeglasses, and I thought that was a really cool thought. Uh, you know, a lot of people forget how much nickel there is in eyewear and things like that. I thought it was a really cool idea, but it bothered me greatly uh, that the lesions were so annular. So I asked a few more questions. She had some kind of I don't even know anymore, I've forgotten all that stuff. Did some kind of like focal sclerosing glomerulonephritis or something like that, something that I buried uh, 12 years ago when I was at Mayo, but uh, I did learn it for a short while as a medical student, but I knew that she treated that with prednisone, so I asked her, do you take prednisone? She said, yeah, I take a lot of prednisone. And so I, I uh, did a scraping and she had tinea facii, and I just, uh, instead of uh, taking her off uh, prednisone or anything like that, I just put her on uh, a little antifungal and she cleared right right up. So again, annual lesions should always uh, be concerning to you. Uh, tinea corporis, moving down further onto the body, uh, it's possible on occasion to have what's called Mayakis granuloma. That's probably the most important thing from this slide. A Mayakis granuloma is really the equivalent of a carry-on, um, but somewhere else on the body other than the scalp. And, and so what happens is the dermatophytes dive further down the uh, follicle and start to live off follicular epithelium instead of the skin surface, and sometimes even topical treatments may eliminate them from the surface but not eradicate the infection, and so it goes on and on and on uh, and becomes a tinea profundus or tinea incognito. Here, here's an example of a woman uh, that had tinea corporis, the annual lesions again, the central clearing from the way that the, uh, the uh, dermatophytes eat keratin. Here's another woman, uh, this was actually like a 14 or 12 year old girl, as I recall she was seen at a practice uh, that I was working at in town, and uh, she, she had been treated uh, with topical steroids for dermatitis. Again, not a perfect annulus, but suggestive of me, uh, to me, of an annulus, and so I scraped it, and it was fungus, and her parents were, of course, pretty upset that she'd been using topical steroids for, like, the better part of 18 months, and probably perpetuating uh, the infection to a large degree. Uh, here's an example of a Miyake's granuloma, which again is just the equivalent of a carry-on, but it's on the trunk. And so what happens is the fungus dives down the hair follicles and sets up shop. Sometimes there's still areas reminiscent of more classic tinea. In other cases, there isn't. Um, but where I see this most often is in people that have been treated with some type of high-potency or mid-potency fluorinated steroid. And that really acts just as kind of fertilizer for the, for the fungus. It, it suppresses your immunity locally enough that it really allows the fungus to set up even better shop and a more persistent in, infection in that area. Uh, so it's a good thing to always ask your patients who are on uh, uh, topical steroids for presumed stasis dermatitis or numular dermatitis uh, if that seemed to help for a short while but only make things worse because the steroid again will take away the itching for a short while but it actually will perpetuate the infection in the end. 
Tinea cruris uh, is a uh, disorder of the groin. It's almost always men. Uh, if it does affect women, it usually affects them in kind of a tangential or a, a, a transient fashion. Uh, they usually acquire it from a man. It's not usually a persistent infection like it is in men. And it certainly does occur in epidemics like athletic teams, military barracks, penal institutions, uh, things like that. You'll have a whole rash of, if you will, a rash uh, of patients all uh, with the same infection uh, at the same time. Uh, here's an example here of, of the um, uh, edge of the expanding annular plaque with kind of some central clearing, sparing of the scrotum. Uh, remember, tinea tends to spare the scrotum, while uh, uh, candida tends to involve the scrotum. And, and again, it gets to my whole little thing. I've been meaning to publish this for a long time. It gets to my little hypothesis on Easter Island is how I teach it to the new medical students. But you are what you eat, right? And dermatophytes eat keratin, uh, pterosporum eats oil, and candida eats sugar. So, so the, the scrotum happens to be the thinnest skin on a man's body. And so what would want to live on the scrotum? Something that wants to get down deep into the tissue quickly and kind of imbibe that fluid, the sugary glucosey fluid, the interstitial fluid between cells. So candida likes to be on the scrotum because it's very, very easy to access what it eats. By the same token, yeah, dermatophytes, they eat keratin. So, so where do they want to be? They want to be on the nice, thick, heavily keratinized skin of the thighs. They don't have much use for the scrotum. It doesn't have much food source on them. So again, you can always remind yourself of, of you are what you eat, and hence dermatophytes tend to involve the, the thighs, while candida tends to involve the scrotum. Uh, this was a person who I went, sent the resident in to see the patient, uh, and they came out. And they said, yeah, he's a 43-year-old man. He's got uh, a decubitus ulcer. And I said, really, a 43-year-old man who's completely ambulatory has a decubitus ulcer? Seems strange. And, and uh, so I opened the door, and I, and I looked from, from like seven feet away, and I said, that guy's got tinea. Uh, and, and sure enough, the, the gluteal fold is a great place. It's warm. It's moist. There's skin in opposition to one another. Uh, and uh, you can tell the annular border, but tinea cruris definitely likes the intragluteal area as much as it does uh, the anterior thighs, uh, and it's, it's not a decubitus ulcer. Uh, tinea pettis uh, is the uh, number one uh, fungal infection in humans, uh, and it's a consequence of one thing. It's these lovely shoes that we wear on our feet. They keep uh, warm moisture in, and they, they make it just a perfect growing environment uh, for, for uh, tinea, and again, it's heavily keratinized. The feet have a bunch of keratin on them. It's just a place to go crazy. And so I love shoes. I'm always going to wear them. I'm not uh, like that guy on the Discovery Channel that wears, you know, shorts and socks to survive in the Ar Arctic wilderness or whatever. But shoes are great. But as a consequence, we have tinea pettis. Uh, so again, you can have all these different kinds of species uh, involved in tinea pettis. Um, but there are really two patterns that you see. One is this interdigital form where you have this maceration and scaling between the digits. And the other one is harder to detect. And, and I see it a lot. And at, at the VA, it's almost like a kind of don't ask, don't tell policy. Uh, it's the original don't ask, don't tell policy. Uh, if they don't ask about it, I don't tell them what it is. Uh, because it's not going to kill them or anything, and it's hard to treat. Uh, but this is moccasin-like tinea pettis right here. And again, you can kind of see the moccasin. I think I put an accentuating line. Oh, darn it, I didn't. 
in one of my slides. I, I have an accentuating line, but it, it's like the scaliness of the entire bottom of the foot, and it gives this really white, chalky appearance to the bottom of the foot. And then you can also see his coexisting onychomycosis right here. Uh, and, and in fact, in people with tinea cruris, what's one thing that we often tell them to do? Put their socks on before they put their underwear on. It's not because we have some kind of weird fetish or something like that. It's because that, that way, uh, when you're pulling your underwear up onto your thighs, you're not pulling a bunch of fungus up uh, with it. It's a little bit of a weird way uh, to get dressed, for sure. Unfortunately, I haven't had to adopt it yet, but uh, as I get older, I might. So we'll, we'll see. Uh, the other thing you see on tinea pettis uh, quite a bit is you see the instep, the uh, bulla on the instep area. And vesicular bolus tinea pettis. Why do you think you see it there? Most common place to see bolus tinea on the whole body is the instep area, and it's because it's a perfect, it's like Goldilocks, like my side of Goldilocks from the other lecture I did. It's the perfect balance of thick skin, which can give a good blister and stay intact, but yet you get enough inflammatory response from the underlying body that, that you get separation of the epidermis uh, from the dermis. So uh, that's what happens here. Uh, it's the perfect combination of skin that will sustain a blister and maintain a blister, uh, but an inflammatory response is what actually causes the fasciculation. So it's very, very common. Again, when I see a guy in the VA and I open the door and I haven't really listened to what the, uh, the resident or intern has presented, which is my standard modus operandi, just kind of nod and nod, because I'm not very, I'm not very uh, auditory. And so I nod, 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 and then open the door and make my own diagnosis and ask the same dumb questions that the poor intern has already asked. Um, but when I open the door and see this, I, I, I nearly always think this is probably uh, bolus tinea pettis. And if you take the roof of the lesion off and look at it under KOH, it's just awesome. It's just filled with tons of hyphae. Uh, here's one hand, two feet syndrome. Everybody heard of that in the room? It's, it's awesome because when I go give these talks uh, to, to non-dermatologists, which I do quite a bit, uh, they, they, uh, they, they always think I'm lying to them. <laughs> I know a lot of them go home and Google it immediately. Uh, but, but if you do Google it immediately, it does really exist. And in fact, the National Institute of Health has spent millions of dollars trying to determine, well, which hand is it? Um, but with uh, tinea pettis and uh, tinea manum, uh, it's usually one hand and two feet that have the fungus and one hand that doesn't. And it's, it's extremely rare. I always put these people in this type of horrible uh, executioner's position because what's most important is my clinical photograph. And, and uh, so again, you have one hand, two feet, but it's an opposite hand of what I just showed you. Uh, so I'm doing my own little thing and it's ending up to be either hand, the non-dominant or the dominant hand. I haven't got millions from the NIH for doing it, but I'm, I'm still conducting my work. Uh, tinea manum itself is a pretty rare diagnosis. Uh, it, it, it's not nearly as common as people want it to be. Often their tinea of their hand is usually dyshydrotic dermatitis or idiopathic palmoplantar peeling, which is a real thing, idiopathic palmoplantar peeling, meaning your, your hand is peeling and we have no idea why. But uh, tinea manum is, is a real thing. It's just not nearly as common as tinea pettis. Onychomycosis, an important point to make, you know, particularly now in an era of direct-to-consumer marketing. You know, they have that cool cartoon of that fungus that slips under your nail and, and they have a party under there with other fungus. And so every person thinks, well, gosh, if I have a grody toenail, the reason it is is because I've been affected with a fungus. 
It's just like, uh, you know, it's like guilty penis syndrome or anything else. You always want to blame it on an infection or spider bites. Poor spiders, they're so maligned. You always want to blame it on something else. And, and so what I tell them is actually only about half of onychodystrophy is due to onychomycosis. The other half is just simply getting older, particularly things like, quote, ridging or brittle nails. Nine times out of ten is simply an older nail than it is onychomycosis. But certainly everybody wants Lamisil. Uh, for, just to give it a shot. Uh, but you're, you really should prove the diagnosis. So uh, onychomycosis is a broad term. I don't know if that's necessarily been presented to everybody in the room, but the word, word onychomycosis just means fungally infected nail. It doesn't indicate that it's necessarily a dermatophyte or is it some kind of strange fungus from the forest that's never been seen before? Uh, that, that would also be under the rubric of onychomycosis. So there's another word called tinea unguium, which is a word that means specifically a dermatophyte infection of the nail. And those are actually more responsive generally to Lamisil and, and other drugs than are non-dermatophytes that really should be growing as a mushroom on a log in a forest but have somehow found their way underneath your nail. And that does happen. In fact, those cases are usually the ones that are poorly responsive to oral antifungals. So you have different kinds of onychomycosis. You have things like proximal subungual, which is rare and it's sometimes associated with HIV. And then you have your garden variety, distal subungual onychomycosis, which is the most common kind. Uh, and, and so you have different forms. Um, but here's an example of superficial onychomycosis. And this is all on the surface of the nail. You can actually scrape this off. It has a very, very white, uh, chalky appearance. Uh, here's just the standard distal subungual onychomycosis that's so prevalent. Uh, maybe even 8, 10, 12, 15 percent of the population has, sub, uh, has subungual, distal subungual onychomycosis. Uh, and then sometimes uh, fungus is involved with pincer nail deformity, but sometimes not. Uh, again, everybody, it's like the spider, everybody wants it to be due to fungus, but sometimes people just genetically have pincer nails. Uh, and, and that's just unfortunate. It's like uh, you know any other unfortunate thing. It's just the way it is. But sometimes it is uh, involved in onych or onychomycosis is involved in the disease, and sometimes it is. This is called a subungual mycetoma. It's not really by true definition a mycetoma, um, but it's not unusual to see this kind of area of onycholysis and discoloration that moves backward on the nail. And, and there are uh, the maximal number of, of, of organisms in that area. Here's the proximal uh, subungual onychomycosis that's sometimes associated with HIV. In fact, when I was a resident here in Dallas, I picked up on a person with undiagnosed HIV uh, by his, his obvious uh, proximal subungual onychomycosis. So. So you always want to prove the diagnosis no matter what fungus we're talking about. Uh, and, and there's different ways to do it. A KOH examination I think is fantastic. I do tons of KOHs. I know other residents that have, have moved through our program recently have probably gotten through the entire program without ever doing a KOH. But I, I like them uh, and, and they're, they're valuable to me. I usually do them with KOH and Chlorazole E, which is a, a black uh, dye that turns the fungus kind of a funky green color. And it's available by Delasco or anything else. It's, it's kind of an easy thing to get a hold of. You can do culture. And, and then lastly, and it'll make me 40 bucks if you do it, but you can do a skin and nail biopsy. And in some series, it's actually been proven to be the most sensitive technique. But what did we learn in the other talk? It's garbage in, garbage out. If you do a bad biopsy, its sensitivity all of a sudden crumps. 
So you have to actually biopsy the thick dystrophic area, which is not the area that's the easiest to cut, uh, but that's where you need to go to get your best, best biopsy. Uh, here, uh, again, uh, are the advantages and disadvantages of each and the address of where to get the KOH and DMSO. Um, but here's an example of tinea, and again, uh, going back to the Easter Island analogy, if you really want to get the maximum number of organisms, you scrape not from the central cleared area, but from the active edge. Uh, here's what you should see. Everybody sees the little keratinocyte boundaries right here, the squames, these little faint boundaries, and every first year dermatology resident wants to call those fungus every time they see them. Uh, but the actual fungus is this kind of greenish, bluish, black structure, which I always an, uh, analogize as disrespecting the keratinocytes. It, it disrespects the boundaries and crosses keratinocyte boundaries easily, suggesting that it's sitting on the surface uh, of the keratinocytes. So that's how to, to, to locate them in a KOH and discriminate them from other structures. Culture is okay, um, but it's actually not particularly sensitive. It's relatively specific, but it's not particularly sensitive. Um, but we do do culture on occasion. And then the cool thing we have in dermatology, because since we're mostly interested in dermatophytes, is dermatophyte test media. And it's this substance that it's, it's yellow, and it stays yellow if it's a saprophyte, uh, unrelated contaminant. But if a dermatophyte is present, the phenothaline uh, in the, in the uh, uh, auger turns to a reddish color, indicating that it's positive. You need to read it at the right appropriate time, which is usually between three and seven days. Um, but it actually will tell you specifically if there's a dermatophyte or if it's just some other fungus that might be a contaminant. Biopsy is great. This is an example of PAS stain of nail material. This is what a nail plate looks like under the microscope. And you can see the little hyphal elements uh, intercalated between amongst the plates of the, of the nail plate. Uh, here's an example of tinea choking in a vessel, or in a, I'm sorry, in a hair follicle. Here's the tinea choking the hair follicle right here. Here's the hair in the middle. So this is an ectothrix. This is a, on the outside of the, of the hair follicle, not on the interior portion of the hair follicle. Uh, so how do you treat these once you've made the diagnosis through whatever treat, uh, through whatever diagnostic modality you're interested in? Uh, tinea capitis is a disease that for the moment, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics and the American Academy of Dermatology, the best agent is still griseovulvin, and part of that's just because it's been around for 50 years and we're treating children and it's known to be a very safe drug. But certainly people use terbinafine, you can use fluconazole in children, you can open the capsules of itraconazole and sprinkle it in applesauce, you can use other things, and indeed the course of treatment is generally shorter if you do use other drugs, but griseovulvin still remains for the moment uh, the drug of choice. Uh, in most circumstances. The other thing you can do for tinea capitis is you can immediately put them on celsian blue, celsian blue shampoo or ketoconazole shampoo, which knocks another, the number of organisms down on the surface very rapidly and helps uh, contain the outbreak, since again, we see this in a, a certain age child uh, that's often in daycare or, or early school. Oh, I forgot, there, there's no firm standard of care, excuse me, with regard to oral corticosteroids for carry-ons, although many people start uh, 40 milligrams, let's say, at the same time that they start the antifungals. There's never been a study to show that those patients do any better in terms of hair loss. For tinea facii, tinea barbie, tinea corporis, uh, the big decision you need to make is how much body surface area is involved and are terminal hairs present. 
Uh, if there's a lot of body surface area, it's going to make a topical agent impractical. And if terminal hairs are involved, then you worry again about the fungi diving down the hair follicle and becoming inaccessible to your topical management. Uh, here's Lotrazone. Here's my opinion of Lotrazone. Uh, I don't like Lotrazone. I know I'm never going to get any invites from the Lotrazone salesman uh, to any dinners or anything, but I don't really like Lotrazone. I don't know why they make it with beta-methazone, which is way too strong. The concept doesn't bother me at all of using a steroid and an antifungal agent, um, but using that particular steroid uh, bothers me because, again, uh, Lotrazone has a six-fold higher failure rate than does a topical steroid alone. So it has a six-fold increase in failure because of that beta-methazone suppressing the immune system, and, and the recurrences are more likely, threefold more likely to have a recurrence. <clears throat> So tinea cruris, uh, the only thing, uh, caveat I'd say, and I write the chapter for Fitzpatrick actually uh, on topical steroids or topical antifungals. I actually write that chapter, and so I read a lot about uh, topical antifungals. The only thing I'd say is that actually some of those are very, very irritating. I don't think that's always appreciated by the patient. It's sort of uh, like we talked about. They, they end up with something down in that area and they're extremely concerned, and so the first thing they do is go to Walmart and buy like, you know, as many different antifungals as they can find on the shelves and start slathering that area uh, in, in these very, very irritating substances. And often that will provoke a allergic response or an irritant response more so than, than and make the inflammation even worse. And so the things that you can find in my chapter, if you read uh, Fitzpatrick's Dermatology and General Medicine, is you'll find that uh, myconazole is among, among the most irritating agents and is very, very often making the problem worse, whereas sulconazole, which is a newer agent, it's not really, really new, but it's a newer agent, is the most mild based on the data available. Now, the only funny thing about that is I think Squibb used to make Exelderm, and I think they recently sold it to Ranbaxy, maybe in the last couple years. But, uh, and they pulled out of Europe and things altogether. But I think you can still get sulconazole, although I haven't written a prescription for probably six to nine months. Uh, the last one I did was at the VA. Uh, and, but I still think you can get this, and it's something to consider in the groin area in particular because it's not very irritating. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that is the patient that I treated with sulconazole, and this, this will burn into your memory that the other agents can be particularly irritating in the groin area. <clears throat> so uh, tinea pettis, foot infections, uh, the big thing, uh, you can use topicals in that area. There's not a lot of hair in that area for the most part, um, but almost everybody under treats, and that's because the patient begins to get relief from itching, and so they stop. And so I really try to impress upon them over and over again that I want, to use the, I want you to use this twice a day for uh, 21 days, even if, you, even if the itching feels better, although I know that half of them probably don't follow my instructions. It used to be that uh, terbinafine was much more expensive than was clotrimazole and things like that. It used to be two or three times more expensive, and so the recommendation used to be to use clotrimazole for your basic tinea pettis. But actually, as of maybe like last March or so, terbinafine cream is now available as a generic, and they're much closer in price. So now, actually, uh, not just my opinion, but uh, uh, Cochrane and things like that also says that terbinafine is probably not definitively, but probably preferred in many circumstances for tinea pettis because of its better efficacy and its minimal increase in price. Uh, 
again, uh, so treating onychomycosis. Uh, there used to be, when I was a younger man, there used to be this huge battle between terbinafine and itraconazole. Terbinafine is Lamisil, itraconazole is Spornox. And I used to benefit directly from that huge battle because both salesmen would be in, in, in the uh, residency program all the time ready to take me go-kart racing or anything else. Uh, so I used to benefit from that battle, uh, but since then, it's actually come through meta-analysis. It's been shown that terbinafine is definitely better. And I, I really almost never prescribe itraconazole anymore for fungal nail infection. I prescribe it for other reasons in the infectious disease clinic, but not for nail infections too much. The only caveats to remember is that they both have a really weird side effect. Uh, itraconazole is an ionotrope and it reduces the strength of the beating of the heart and so its, it's uh, main contraindication is uh, severe CHF. And then terbinafine is not associated un, un rare, or infrequently with worsening or unmasking or even production of drug-induced lupus erythematosus. There's not an un, uh, infrequent case report on this phenomenon. So if you're using terbinafine, there's probably a couple questions you want to ask patients and document well. Again, speaking as an attorney, you want to document well in your note. You want to not only ask them about liver disease, hepatitis, but you also want to ask them, do they have a, a history of lupus or a strong uh, family history of lupus, and are they sun-sensitive? Uh, because all those things have been shown to be predictive of people that might have an unusual reaction to terbinafine. Lastly, there's topical treatments for nail infections. Uh, this one's been around for a long time, uh, cyclopyroxolamine. Its cure rate is not amazing, uh, and this is their unretouched photographs, but it's useful in a po patient population of people, usually at the VA and things, who have hepatitis C, who are on a whole bunch of medicines, and yet they're not going to let their nail fungus die. You know, they're not going to let this go untreated. They want you to do something about it. So that's probably where I use it the most, is in people that want to do something about it, um, but they, they haven't decided exactly. Uh, or they have contraindications to doing something more effective. The only other thing I'd say is in the chapter that I do of Fitzpatrick, there's two on the horizon treatments for, for uh, onychomycosis. One is a nail lacquer from Europe that has amolorphine. I think it's amolorphine. It's A-M-O-R-O-L-F-I-N-E. Uh, and it's a, it's a uh, medicine that has much better penetration. It's available in Europe. Uh, in Australia, places like that, but it's not yet available here. And then another one is brand new. It's called, I think at the moment, AN2690. It's a research chemical. Um, but I saw at the beginning of the week that the pharmaceutical company that's uh, making it is going to go public and use those, use those funds to develop the medicine further. So it, it's a medicine that has boron in it, boron meaning the, the chemical on the periodic table. Uh, and it's going to be used for onychomycosis and also has very high penetration of the nail. Uh, the only other thing we say about nail uh, infections is that the five-year outcome is very, very poor, and that's probably because people don't really change their patterns of behavior. Uh, they, they, they continue on in the same pattern, wearing the same shoes, going to the same health clubs, all those different things. And, and for this reason, people are very interested in sometimes using prophylaxis, uh, like antifungal creams in addition to oral, and, and I've found that in my own practice just anecdotally to be the most successful. 
I always get this question <coughs> about using VIX. There's never been a real study that looked at it, but there are certainly some chemicals in VIX which could potentially, not potentially, which are, uh, have antifungal properties. Um, but if it does, uh, I found one article written by a nurse practitioner uh, that she tried it in, in you know, a very small number of patients, and it took six months to a year to affect a cure. So it's certainly not the quick VIX, but it might potentially be uh, a choice. Now that terbenafin is on the $4 Walmart uh, plan, I'd probably stick to more uh, uh, tried and true regimens. Just to cover real briefly non-dermatified infections, we already talked about Canada. It eats sugar, so it likes to be on thin skin and mucosa and places where it has access to that interstitial fluid to imbibe and, and survive. Creates a whole bunch of disease states, thrush, perinechia, uh, Canada diaper dermatitis, intertrigo, but again, Canada intertrigo, not simple irritant intertrigo, which is more common. Here's Canada intertrigo, and you can see the satellite pustules right here in the arm. Again, intertrigo can just be irritation of the skin just because it's irritation of the skin, but this is Canada intertrigo. Here's intertrigo of the groin fold, and again, notice which skin it prefers, just like I taught you earlier on. It prefers the thin skin of the scrotum, over the thick skin of the thigh. Here's another example, preferring the scrotum, creating that beefy red appearance with all the satellite pustules that you expect from, from something that's going into the skin, trying to get the juicy, sugary fluid, and also confronting the immune system to a greater degree than our dermatophytes. Here's an example of the satellite pustules on the beefy red plaques. Here's a, the, probably my favorite disease in the whole world, just because it has such a cool name. Erosio interdigitalis blastomycetica, which affects generally the longest web space of the hand uh, and creates this plaque. And all you have to really do to treat that, I've treated it, I've probably only diagnosed it three or four times in 10 years, but all you have to do to treat it is, is have them splay their fingernail or their finger webs apart for 20 minutes twice a day. You don't even need a drug uh, because generally uh, the candida will go, go away once their, their source of moisture is gone. Perlash, again, very, very common in Colorado uh, where it's very, very dry and the, and the, the uh, skin cracks and it provides a lot of fluid uh, to the candida, not as common in humid environments. Uh, thrush, I've been called in for Stephen Johnson, TEN at 2 in the morning and then scraped off the TEN with a, with a tongue depressor and, and then left. Uh, so so this, is, this is thrush. Uh, here's an example of what you see under the microscope. If you scrape thrush off and put it on a slide, you see these pseudo-hyphae. They're not real hyphae, but they're pseudo-hyphae uh, from the Canada yeast growing in, in chains like sausage. You can, you can culture it uh, as well. Uh, so all candidiasis uh, is really treated the same way, mostly with nystatin, with clotrimazole. Uh, uh, you can use fluconazole and itraconazole. Terbinafin coverage of, of, of Canada is not great. Uh, it's probably better than it would be in theory, but it, it's not a great choice for candidiasis. So I usually tr uh, stick to either clotrimazole or another azole uh, topically or to fluconazole or itraconazole orally. Uh, same thing here. Uh, the last thing to talk about is pterosporum uh, infections, which again, pterosporum is a yeast uh, that's commensal. It's always on the skin, uh, but it does overgrow. Uh, and so it really is confined to areas of oil because that's what it eats. It eats sebum. Uh, and so it's unlikely to have 
pterosporum on the, the back of your hand because there's not much oil there, but it's very, very common to have pteriasis on, on your anterior trunk, your posterior trunk, particularly in an inverted triangle on the side of your neck and your hair, places where there's a lot of oil. Um, but when it's in a pathologic form, uh, we refer to it as malassezia fervor, but it's the same thing. Uh, it's just a, a pathologic form of pterosporum yeast. And it can cause all kinds of things like uh, what we'd prefer you call pteriasis versicolor, folliculitis, and even systemic infections on occasion. Usually those patients that have systemic disease are on propofol, which has a, a nice oily substance uh, that, the, that the yeast like to eat. This is an example of tinea versicolor. It's very, very helpful to go up to the skin and just splay it apart. And, and you'll notice that tinea versicolor gets real, uh, real flaky and bran-like scale if you splay the skin apart and mycosis fungoides and other things that look like that don't. Uh, here's a guy whose only normal skin is this strip down the middle right here and the rest of his entire body is basically being taken over by tinea versicolor. It's fading out in the non-oily areas but it's pretty impressive. Here's pterosporum folliculitis, which the history, I almost make this diagnosis on history when people send me uh, their biopsies because I look down and it says if it's a good person that's provided a lot of history, it says, you know, person with repeated episodes of folliculitis, failing oral antibiotics, et cetera, et cetera. And that's the classic person to get this pterosporum folliculitis because it doesn't respond to, to antibiotics or, uh, for bacteria and it actually only makes the problem worse. Uh, it's very common, to, I took the slide out, but it, it's very common to see it in, in uh, women that like to exercise a lot on the anterior chest, between the breasts, places like that, and they're the people that hate it the most. You know, uh, Again, at the VA, this is also on the don't ask, don't tell uh, protocol uh, for, for most men, but most women will not be, be tolerant of that. So you diagnose it based on the clinical appearance, the spaghetti and meatballs, the spaghetti is big yeast forms, the meat, I'm sorry, the spaghetti is short hyphae, the meatballs are these big yeast forms I'll show you in a minute. You can do a tape prep, which is pretty easy. You just take a piece of masking tape, put it on the plaque, strip it off, take a drop of your, your stain, put it on the slide, and then put your tape over it. That's a very easy thing to do. They also make slides with tape on them if you're very wealthy. You can go ahead and order those from Delasco and they actually have double-sided tape on the slide already. You can do a biopsy and again I, I do get a fair number of those but it's not necessary usually. Here's an example of the spaghetti and meatballs. Here's the, the, the meatballs. Here's the spaghetti, the short hyphae. They're not big long hyphae like I showed you before. They're very, very short hyphae with very, very large round yeast forms. Here's an example on a KOH without methylene blue. Here's the short, <coughs> excuse me, the short spaghetti. Here's the uh, meatballs right here. So this is just a, here's a keratinocyte right here, this big old thing. So you treat that um, with imidazole creams usually. Cyclopyroxolamine works as well. Selenium sulfide, you have them put it on for 20 minutes, wash it off. Uh, that also works, although a lot of people don't like the irritation and smell. And unfortunately, if you tell somebody to do it for 20 minutes and they're very, very desperate, they think, gosh, if 20 minutes works good, then leaving this on overnight will be awesome. And they end up giving themselves a horrible irritant uh, dermatitis from it. Uh, ketoconazole is a, a good thing. I, I used to do that all the time. I used to give four pills, four 200 milligram tablets, take two tablets, uh, wait 90 minutes for it to hit your stomach, uh, then go exercise, leave the sweat on your body, wash it off the next morning, repeat in a week. 
that's usually what I, I call the wedding uh, plan. Usually the people that I do that the most on are like 23-year-old women who have a wedding in a couple weeks and they, they want to wear a nice gown without their tinea versa color. Um, but ketoconazole does have about a 1 in 50,000 incidence of idiopathic hepatic necrosis. So it's not something that I do for every patient or do it, you know, 100 times in their life. Uh, the other thing you can do for really, really bad cases of seborrheic dermatitis, for that matter, which is also pterosporin-based, is you can do 100 milligrams twice a day for seven days, and then the first two days of each month, and that really is like a nuclear bomb for seborrheic dermatitis or for tinea versicolor. And the last slide, here's an eight-year-old girl with these erythematous annual lesions on the face without scale. The mom was concerned about the possibility of fungus. So I saw this patient with another doctor here in Dallas. And we just took a little bit more detailed history. And uh, all she'd been doing is squeezing the air out of those little things and sucking her off on her cheek and creating annual lesions. So although I harped on it excessively, not everything that's annular is a fungus. Okay? All right. I think we're in good shape. Uh, if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. And if not, uh, enjoy what's left of your time in Dallas. In Indianapolis right now, there's a really common commercial of a clinic doing lasers for onychomycosis. I don't know what regimen or laser. Yeah, that's using. brand new. Yeah, um, yeah. I haven't done that, that personally, and we don't have the right laser to do it or anything like that. But that is a brand new uh, uh, therapy that's available. I don't have any experience with it at all, but uh, uh, it seems um, it seems reasonable. I mean, it would work. It seems like expensive for for uh, a fungal infection that has a 50% chance of, of being present, uh, you know, a couple years later. But I think that's totally uh, an option. I just don't have any experience with it, nor do I have the right laser for it. But I, I think it's being opened by a lot of podiatrists as a way to get cash-paying patients and things in for treatment. Yes, ma'am. I was wondering if you have any experience using uh, naftin gel for onychomycosis. We've had some fairly good results in in our clinic. Well, that, that's that. interesting. No, I, I've never tried that myself. Uh, one time we used a dentist drill to drill holes in the nail uh, and, and we used things like, uh, uh, we used just topical agents like clotrimazole and things. Just having those holes in the nail allowed it for better penetration and actually eradicated uh, the disease, but not everybody's going to allow you to use a dentist drill on their, on their <laughs> nail because one slip and you've got a very painful uh, uh, piercing uh, sensation in your nail bed. But the problem with all onychomycosis isn't that we don't have things to kill it, it's that we don't have good penetration of the nail plate. And that's where the new agents, the, the, the two that are used currently in Europe and the one that's coming uh, here after the public offering, the initial public offering, they're going to be very, very impressive because they have much higher degrees of penetration into the nail plate. We don't use the drill, but I have them uh, apply it after showering. Yeah, when the nail is soft, yeah, that, that yeah. probably does help a ton. It, and again, it's not that we can't cure or uh, can't kill those agents. It's just that we, we don't have, we have trouble getting it to penetrate the nail. Uh, occasionally on cultures, I get some really funky stuff that I've never heard of before. Do you have a resource or something of what some of those more uh, rare molds or fungus yeah, might be responsive Yeah, sometimes I've looked things to. up. I, I've looked things up on Dr. Fungus, which is a website on TV or on the uh, Internet. But I have actually looked some of those up because you do get some really crazy ones. In that situation, you're confronted with, with a central decision. 
do I believe that this is pathologic or do I think that this is a contaminant? And that's probably the largest decision. But uh, again, you're dealing with a, an infection that unless you have diabetes or repeated episodes of cellulitis, poses no real health threat to you uh, and is poorly treated with Lamisil. So in, in most of those situations where I get what could possibly be a saprophyte or a contaminant, I simply tell the patient that I really don't know that exposing you to nine months of, of terbinafine is going to actually do anything.